Good morning, everybody. It is great to be with you on this holiday weekend as we celebrate Memorial Day. I'm reminded of the story of a little boy named Scotty who went on Memorial Day weekend with his mother to their local Baptist church. And upon entering the church, he looked up at the plaque on the wall and he said, Mom, what is that? She looked at it and she said, well, that is the list. That is the list of names of those who've died in the service. To which he looked for a moment and said, I wonder if it was the 915 or the 11. (laughs) So rest assured, no one has yet gone that way in the 915 today. So it is good to be here with you. Let's pray, shall we, as we turn our attention to the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you continue to shape our thinking about who you are. And we pray today that as you indeed shape our thinking, that you would continue to refine our attitude, that you would help us in our disposition of worship for the sake of our good, but even more so for the sake of your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. A husband asks his wife if she wants to go to church today. And she says that she'd rather sleep in, but if it's important to him, that she'll go. Two friends are talking about the church, and one says, you know, I don't think I'm going to go to church this Sunday. I'm just not feeling it right now. Another person says that they come to church if they have the opportunity to serve with children. But they really don't find a lot of value in going to the corporate worship service. And so they come, they go to the back hallway, they serve with children, and then they leave. Or three teenagers are discussing whether or not they will want to go to church this Sunday. And they all decide that if they're all going to go, if each other is going to go, then all of them will go and they'll even go together. Because after all, church is a lot more fun when your friends are there. Those are descriptions that people might often say or wrestle with when they think about the idea of going to church. Maybe those are things that you've even said yourself or thought about yourself. Should I go to church on Sunday? These would be the reasons why or why not. But what's wrong with those descriptions? Well, at their core, those descriptions catch some of the wonderful and ancillary benefits of being part of a church like Old North. Benefits of being part of the gathered people. Strengthening your marriage or having emotional joy or excitement or serving God by serving others or having meaningful friendships, Christian friends in the context of a church family. But at the core, all of those descriptions miss the main reason why God's people gather together. God's people gather together primarily for worship. Last week we kicked off this new series that were called The Gathered People. And we explored how God, at the most basic level, gathers a group of people to himself. And we call this group of people the church. And the doorway into that gathered people is redemption. And so the church, by its very nature, is a people of the redeemed. 
That everybody who has true faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins become part of the church universal. And those, that church universal is expressed locally in congregations of redeemed people coming together. And today, as we consider what this gathered people is, what the church is, and what the church does, we consider the fact that if the church is the people of the redeemed, then one of the core tasks of this gathered people is that they must be, by their very nature, a worshiping people. Now, in one sense, the Christian is to worship God in all of their life, his or her life, and we see that to be true. You would be right to say that. But in another sense, there's something unique that happens as the gathering comes together with the primary purpose of worshiping God. And that's what we're going to explore together today. You probably have not heard too many pastors in your life tell you, don't go to church. But that's what I'm saying to you today. Don't go to church. Because there's something so much better. Come and worship the king of the universe. Wayne Grudem gives this simple definition of corporate worship. He says, worship is the activity of glorifying God in his presence with our voices and with our hearts. And so I want to ask you to grab a Bible and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. If you don't have a copy of the scripture, please grab the Pew Bible in front of you. Hebrews chapter 12 is found on page 1009 of the Pew Bible. And here in Hebrews 12, the writer is addressing the huge differences between the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. And in doing so, he's showing them something about the nature of their worship. And I believe you can apply this to our worship experience today. He's showing how our worship together as a people far surpasses the immediate experience of what's happening in the room right now. Something is happening here that reaches into the heavenlies. And when you understand that, it will change the way you act your attitudes and your evaluations of what it means to be part of the gathered people, the local church. And so let's read together, starting in Hebrews 12, chapter 18. And by way of context, in 18 through 21, the writer is making a reference to the Old Testament in which the people are gathered together in experience of meeting God. And we'll talk about that more in just a moment. This is what he says. He says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of the trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festal gathering 
and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised. Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The problem is that the Hebrews do not fully perceive what is happening in their worship of God. And therefore, they don't take it seriously enough. And I think that we can say that one of the major problems of the church today, particularly the church in the Western world, is that we do not fully perceive what is happening in our worship of God. And therefore, it is quite often that we do not take it seriously enough. And to show this, what the writer of Hebrews does is that he paints a picture of worship in the Old Testament. He describes how worship under the New Covenant or New Testament, and even today, is better. It's better than worship in the Old Testament. And then we draw some implications from that. And so consider with me. Verses 18 to 21, he paints a picture of a specific worship event in Exodus chapter 19 of the Old Testament in which God's people gather together to worship. But to understand that, you need to understand the purposes of God even before that. Remember in the book of Exodus, the people of Israel are enslaved in Egypt. God raises up a prophet, Moses, to go and to deliver his people from that slavery. And he goes to Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, speaking on behalf of God, and he reveals one of God's purposes in delivering this people, this people Israel. This is what he says in Exodus chapter 7, verse 16. He says, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. That they may serve me in the wilderness. The word for serve used right there is the same word used for worship. And some of your translations, Bible translations, actually use that word. Let my people go so that, in order that, for the purpose that they may worship me in the wilderness. And we see the specific event 
of worship, God's plan to deliver them and bring them to a place of worship in Exodus chapter 19. We see that worship happens in the presence of God. The ten plagues had been delivered. The people had been set free. Moses had led them into the wilderness, and now they've come to Mount Sinai. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 to 21, the tempest and the cloud and the fire and the trumpet are all referring to this particular event. Try to picture it with me. Try to see it in your mind's eye. Two and a half million people encamped in the wilderness near Mount Sinai. They're weary, and yet they're filled with anticipation. God has miraculously brought them to this place, and through his prophet, they will be led forward. And now that prophet Moses is speaking with God. And this is what it says in verse 3. It says, while Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession Among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And looking ahead to verse 16, it describes on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightning and thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke And God answered him in thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called to Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And as Moses was on the mountain, God delivered to him the Ten Commandments. And it says in the very next chapter, in Exodus 20, verse 18, the reaction of the people. It says, now when all the people saw the thunder... And the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. The people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off. And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear. For God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. People stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And so in the Old Testament, you see that the presence of God produces worship 
that was filled with the people receiving something from God, but within them was filled awe and wonder and even fear. And the people were changed by being in his presence. They would still sin. They would still commit horrendous sin. But the experience of being in the presence of God would change them forever. God gathers a people to himself. He redeems them so that he may be with them and that they may worship him. And that is the picture of worship that Hebrews chapter 12 at the beginning of the chapter is talking about. Blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest and the sound of the trumpet and the voice whose words made the hearers beg not to hear any more messages because of fear and awe and wonder at the great and mighty God. Now turn your attention with me to how the vision of New Testament worship is better than that picture of worship. It's mysterious, that picture of worship. It's awesome, literally, that picture of worship. But the worship that Christians engage in today is better. And this is why. Verse 22. He says, But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a, word, a better word than the blood of Abel. What he's describing here is Christians who gather in worship, and when they come in faith to worship God, they engage in a type of worship that comes alongside of those in the heavenly realms. Think about that for a second. Just think that even right now, right even today, that as Christians gather to worship, their thoughts, their words, their voices, their actions, their receptivity, all of that comes alongside a gathering that is happening in the presence of God in heaven. And he shows this by describing it in a variety of ways to be true. The first is the location. Verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion. And what the implication is, is Mount Zion is better than Mount Sinai. <laughs> Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the new Jerusalem, these are all expressions of the same thing. Throughout the Bible, we see descriptions these types of descriptions used to portray the place where the people of God are forever in the presence of God. It's holy. It's precious. It's a glorious place that centers on the person of God. And if you are in that place, you have access to him. 
He is near, and you have access. We see this is better than Mount Sinai with clouds and thunder and lightning. And the contrast between that experience of Mount Sinai and the fear is contrasted here in that he describes this gathering as a festal gathering instead of a moment of trembling. Exodus 19, the people trembled at the coming of God, but here in this place of worship, they rejoice that he is here. There's a festive spirit and festive activities, and the people long to be here. Instead of cowering, they clamor for him. Instead of dispersing away and stepping back from him, they gather near to him and they congregate around him. Instead of begging that he would not speak to them, they hang on his every word. And notice the company that they're in. The worship that happens on earth joins the worship that happens in heaven. And verse 22 says that this congregation, within this congregation, there are innumerable angels. Now try to picture it. Don't just simply process the logic of this. I believe that the reason why this type of description is here so that you can try to see it in your mind's eye. The festal gathering in heaven with angels as far as the eye can see. Those beings that are not mortal, who have not been marred by sin, who exist to do the bidding of God and therefore glorify his name. Try to see it, try to picture it in your mind. By seeing it, be compelled by it, and be compelled by it so that your outlook, your attitude, your actions begin to change. Alongside of these innumerable angels, it says there are the firstborn enrolled in heaven. The idea of being enrolled in heaven is certainly a reference to having your name written in the book of life, the role. Of the redeemed, one by one, that God knows every single one of them. And the fact that they're called the firstborn, well, Jesus is called the firstborn in Hebrews 1 6. And now we see that all of his people are the firstborn, those who have faith in him, indicating that they receive the inheritance of the firstborn son. This is the worship gathering that the Christians have come to. And they've also come. To God, the judge of all. It's interesting as you think of this gathering, as you try to visualize it, the innumerable angels, the host of the firstborn enrolled in heaven, that God, of all the ways that God could be described, he's referred to as the judge of all. And that's not a mistake. Whereas 
throughout the Bible, the fact that God is the judge of all is often meant to warn us to bring people into a state of corrective fear. Here, the fact that God is the judge brings actually the opposite. It brings great comfort and even encouragement. It does so for two reasons. Number one, because in focusing on the person of God in worship and the attributes of God, you begin to see how his judgments always hold to be the best judgments. They always hold to be true. And therefore, that compels us to worship all the more. But secondly, we find great comfort in that the judgment that he gives is not against his children, but it's for his children. The judgment of God is for you, if you are a Christian, and against the one who would try to drag you into hell. Satan himself. There's a picture of this type of worship in Revelation chapter 19. It's a picture of the multitude of heaven gathering around, and it says this in the vision. It says, after I heard this, or I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and they worshiped the God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants who fear him, small and great. Don't go to church. Come and worship the God of the universe. We see more of this description of the festal gathering. And I move quickly. Verse 23, he refers to the spirits who have been made righteous or perfect. This is a same Uh, description of the firstborn from a different angle. It, It highlights the fact that those who believe in the Lord Jesus for their salvation, to forgive them of their sins, are brought from a place that are far off and very imperfect and in eternity as they sit before their Father in heaven forever, they have been made perfect. And it's one of the great news of the gospel for you. That all the imperfections that make up you will be abolished completely and perfected in you as you sit before this God forever. We see that at this festal gathering is not only God who judges all, but verse 24, Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. That is to say that The book of Hebrews all points to the fact that Jesus is the perfect mediator, the one who brings us into a relationship with God the Father, and he mediates the relationship that we have with God. 
by bearing God's wrath on the cross, by forgiving us of our sins, by extending to us his righteousness, that we may have access and presence both now and in eternity. And so the picture of the worship gathering is that God is there and Jesus and the gospel, the work of Jesus, is ever represented before the people for eternity. And we see that in the very next segment as he says, you're coming to this festal gathering, which means you're coming to the sprinkled blood. That has a better word than the blood of Abel. That the blood of Christ gives something better. The blood of Abel cries out for justice. And in the blood of Christ, justice has been served. God's wrath has been poured out on his son. The sin offering has been made by his blood. And for those who have faith, they have nothing to fear. And so what are the implications of this? If indeed Christians gather together for worship and their worship comes alongside the worship that happens in the heavenlies with angels and spirits of the redeemed and the presence of God and the presence of his son Jesus, what does that mean for you right now? Well, it means, firstly, that our worship extends beyond our immediate experience. And so, the way that we view gathering together for worship profoundly changes from the way that probably most of us think about going to church. Most of us think we go to church, we're going to get something good out of this. We're going to have a good conversation with a friendly person, maybe a nice cup of coffee, maybe some music that I like, maybe a sermon that might inspire me. But in the picture of the heavenly worship gathering, it's interesting to note that the people who are there are there not because they're seeking to get something, but it's because they have already received the most important things. Grace, mercy, forgiveness, redemption, inheritance, and access are all theirs already in the gathering. They come to the moment of worship because they want to be with him and give something to him. And of course, in giving something to him, there are things that they receive in return. Do you come here today because... You want to give to God the worship that is due to him? Last week we made an important distinction. We used the phrase, you don't go to church, you go to worship with the church. And the emphasis that we were trying to make is that the church is not a building, it's not an event that the church is the gathered people, all of you, the people of the redeemed. And so there's an activity that happens when the redeemed get together, it's worship. Today we could use the exact same phrase with a different point of emphasis. You don't go to church, 
you go to worship with the church. And the point of emphasis based on this text is that you come together to worship God. That's the reason, the primary reason we're here. To give to him adoration and praise and to worship him by submitting ourselves to his word. And this is the God who judges all. And our worship is in his presence along with a host of angels and all the redeemed in heaven and on earth. We look at engaging in the service of worship very differently. Here's another implication. Implication number two is that if this is truly happening this way, if our experience in worship goes beyond what's happening in the room, then of course those who participate must be intentional about what we do, about what we teach, about what we sing, about what we give, about what we pray. The heavenly gathering that we join is described in many ways, but it's not described as being casual or flippant. I think another implication is that this means that we sing. Because we're growing in our understanding of what is actually happening as we express praise to God. And what does it say if we don't sing? I wonder if you've ever been to a sporting event where all the crowd is standing and cheering. And as you've looked down the aisle, you've seen one person sitting here like this. Or perhaps you've been to a wedding where you see all the people that have gathered with great joy. That they're there for a purpose of celebrating the love of this couple. And there's a sort of a unified, palpable hope in the room about their future together. But as you've looked across the aisle, you saw the one person was particularly distraught at the event. Can you imagine? Can you visualize being with the host of the heavenly throngs? Having come to Mount Zion, being with innumerable angels the redeemed people of years gone by and in the very presence of God himself? Can you imagine having the Lord Jesus, your redeemer there and seeing his face and him seeing your face and knowing your thoughts and your attitude and your actions? Could you imagine being in the festal gathering in a group of millions and millions and millions of people who are singing glory and honor and praise to God while you sit there like this? Because it's not the manly thing to do for men to sing. Or 
because I don't like the song in that particular arrangement or because it's not contemporary enough for me or traditional enough for me. How out of place would that be? How out of step, how sad, really, to miss the opportunity to sing in that type of gathering. And so when Christians come together to worship God, we sing. You sing like you are in that very gathering. Because in some ways, you really are. Here's another implication. This means that when we pray, that we pray together. And when we do, we encourage you to say out loud a particular word. Amen. The prayers that are offered in the corporate worship of a church service, the gathering of the redeemed who are worshiping God, are meant to be vocalizing, one person vocalizing the prayers of the entire community. And so when one of our elders or pastors or members of the congregation leads us in prayer like one of our elders did today, that we encourage you to pay attention to the words that they're saying, to even silently and mentally agree with what they're praying to God himself who knows your thoughts and your mind, and to use a particular word upon the conclusion. And that word is a vocalized amen, which means that word amen means it is true or I agree. So we ask all of you to say a hearty amen as we all pray together with one person vocalizing our prayers. That's one implication. We could talk about implications for Christian giving in worship. We could talk about implications, and we will in just a minute, for what it means to receive from God, from his word. Uh, But we conclude with that last point in verse 25. The last implication, I think, that we'll talk about today anyway. In implications of the worship of the redeemed people gathering in worship, joining alongside the heavenly throngs, is this. See that you do not refuse him. Verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven. Who's he talking about? Who warned on earth and is warning from heaven? Well, it could be one of two people and only two people. It could be the Father God himself whose voice shook the earth. Or it could be the Lord Jesus who warned from earth for his entire life and now warns from heaven. And I tend to believe it's the latter because he is the living word of God. And we don't hear him speak audibly in the same way that people did when he was on earth. But we hear him speak through the power of the spirit as we engage in his written word of God, the scriptures. And so the implication and the warning is, don't refuse him who is speaking. 
or by refusing him who is speaking the words that he speaks, you're actually refusing the person, Jesus himself. He concludes with this great verse. The picture is incredible. The crescendo is mighty. And then verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful that we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. I hope you're starting to see it. Because of Christ, your worship of God is actually in the presence of God. Even though you don't see him with your eyes and you don't perceive the festal gathering in your thoughts and the innumerable angels or you don't hear the spirits of the believers who have gone before us in this gathering. But they're all there, and they're all very real. And so I challenge you to change your attitude, your outlook, even your actions in worship. Don't go to church. Come and worship the King, the God, the Savior of the universe. To illustrate this ever-increasing need for wonder and awe, I conclude with a story that Ravi Zacharias uh, once told. He said, if I were telling my children the same fairy tale, notice the different reactions. If I took Sarah at age eight and I said to her, Sarah, little Tommy got up and walked to the door and opened the door and a dragon jumped out in front of her. Sarah's eyes would go wide. And imagine me now telling the story to little Naomi, age four, the same story. Naomi, little Tommy, got up, walked to the door, and opened it. And her eyes would go wide. Now let's imagine that I tell the story to Nathan, age two, whose entire worldview can be summed up in one word, cookie. All I have to say is, Nathan, little Tommy got up and walked to the door. And his eyes would go wide. Ravi concludes, you see the difference? Sarah needed the dragon. Naomi needed the door to be opened. And it was enough, a pretty big deal for Nathan just to have the character walk up to the door. The older you get, the more it takes to fill your heart with wonder and awe. And only God is big enough to fill it. And so as you think about this gathering of people, as you think about what's happening beyond this very room in the festal gathering of the redeemed, of the 
innumerable angels in the sprinkled blood that gives a better word in the covenant mediator of Jesus. May the wonder and awe of God fill you and may your worship be ever growing as a result. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for a picture, a picture of a spiritual reality that we so often cannot perceive. And we pray, Father, we, we repent. We ask that you would forgive us for how casual or how superficial we engage in the worship of you, whether by ignorance, which it has been for me and for many of us, or whether it is by self-centeredness. We ask, God, that you would help us to more actively and honestly and purely engage in this gathering of the redeemed because you are a great and mighty God. Increase our vision of who you are. Help us to worship in a manner that is deep and pleasing to you. Help us to give to you everything that we have and are. And we pray these things for our benefit and even more so for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.